Thank you for choosing Tox News, your only source into automating your ungrateful workforce. I am your host, that wacko weirdo rebel scum Jedi hero. Today's date is June 7th, 2021. And we begin per usual with the Pledge of Allegiance, the old Tox News way. For I pledge allegiance to liberty and justice for all. Yet again, thank you for joining me. I'm so glad you're here for this momentous Monday where I have a bunch of short clips to get through. Um, but we're going to be focusing in in particular to classic Ben Shapiro videos because he decided over the weekend to put up some of these videos where he would take questions or disagreements and address them. But we begin uh, first with this Fox News uh, segment here called McDonald's Testing Automated Drive-Thru. Now, if you've listened to this podcast long enough or if you know me well enough, um, I've been railing at the fact that we constantly blame immigrants for our economic woes when uh, automation is coming for about 50% of our labor force come around the year 2050. Uh, this is something that is highlighted in Yuval Noah Harari's book, uh, Homo Sapiens and Homo Deus. Um, and it's quite the concern that we never really talk about. And so as we're starting to really see the emergence of automated workforce, either through the, uh, you know, the serviceless uh, bookstore of Amazon where you walk in and if you have an Amazon Prime account, you can basically grab whatever items you want, walk out, and it will charge you to your account with no human interactions necessary whatsoever. And now we're seeing here with the McDonald's uh, drive through So let's begin. Meow. As restaurants around the country struggle to find workers, Democrats like Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer are using federal dollars to increase entry-level minimum wages. And now companies like McDonald's are pushing back, employing artificial intelligence to keep costs down and replace entry. So already, <clears throat> what I find fascinating here is that the argument is being made, or at least the premise, is that McDonald's is automating because of pushes to raise the minimum wage almost as if this thing isn't inevitable, like inevitably going to happen, that most of our menial workforce that can be done by a computer will be done by a computer. Um, automation has been taking over a lot of the workforce since the early 19th century as we moved through industrialization. And now through our next technological advance advancement age, we're looking at AI taking over other jobs, mostly in the retail section and, you know, as we see food production. Um so it's it's an inevitability that automation is going to come for more and more jobs as machines are a lot more efficient in doing these menial tasks than human beings. We get sick, we get tired, we feel alienated from our workforce, from our jobs. So there's there's a lot going into why machines would be better for doing a lot of these jobs, but without the proper, proper infrastructure to take care of people's basic needs while replacing their opportunity for income or economic value, um, we're looking at something very drastic and dangerous in the changes to come so um, I find it very interesting here that it's because workers want to get paid more that McDonald's is automating its workforce as if this isn't a trend that we've been heading towards even with like um, I've seen like advertisements on like Hulu 
for like uh, car dealerships that are basically automated now. You don't really have to come into contact with a car dealer. Um, it's all online and automated. And then maybe the only person that will be there is, um, I think it's Carvana. And um, the only person that will be there is the person who drops off your car, which I think eventually as self-driving cars get more uh, advanced and efficient, that too will be replaced. We'll have an automated uh, automated car dropping off your car, which quite might possibly also too be a self-driving car here nearly in the future. Um, Tesla has been toying with this technology for a little bit, haven't quite gotten it down to an exact science that is a perfect formula, but they're still working on it nonetheless. And I wouldn't expect, you know, before the end of this century that we have a lot of self-driving cars. It's an inevitability. Whether we raise their uh, minimum wage or we don't, it's an inevitability because machines are more efficient and cost effective. So it, it behooves the capitalists to uh, reshape their um, workforce as much as they can towards automation. In fact, the market really is rewarding them for doing so. And I doubt we're going to get into why here, but let's see tree-level workers. Here to react is former CKE restaurant CEO Andy Puzder. Good morning to you. So um, there's 10... Uh, there's 10 McDonald's locations in Chicago that are testing out artificial intelligence at drive throughs So do you think that this could actually be a real trend that um, continues to possibly take other entry-level jobs away? Yeah, absolutely. Look, look businesses are like any other entity. Uh, if you threaten... I mean, I just want to highlight here that who they brought on to discuss this is a capitalist, a business owner. Um, I find it very unfortunate that, they, you know, it's Fox News, so we expect a certain level of bias. But I do find it very interesting that they didn't find a labor organizer or a member of a union to at least juxtapose the position and say why automation might be more harmful to the working class than uh, helpful. Um, and why uh, pushing for livable wages and higher quality of living standards is uh, that detrimental to businesses, especially one of McDonald's, which makes obscene amounts of profit every year and also is able to pay um, livable wages in like Sweden in Norway and yet keep uh, American workers on starvation wages. Um, so it's a very fascinating case that we're that we have here. And it's even more interesting to me that we get the one sided biased opinion of a guy who owns restaurants. In their survival, they will do whatever they can to survive. And with and then that that comment saying that McDonald like businesses will do whatever they need to do to survive as if like bumping the wages of workers at McDonald's is going to kill McDonald's, one of the biggest, largest, globalized um, food, like fast food restaurants ever, like ever in the history of human human existence. Um, the, the fact that this is the arguing selling point for McDonald's specifically isn't a very sound one, mainly because it's not to protect the survival of McDonald's, but to protect the profit margin, which has to increase with every quarter, lest the shareholders or the investors or um, other people find that unseemly for a business in a capitalist society. Food costs increasing dramatically because of the Biden administration's policies leading to inflation generally, plus wages, you know, wages. Biden's um, policies leading to inflation generally really doesn't even have much merit behind it either. And he 
throws that claim out with absolutely no evidence whatsoever, as if we didn't go through an entire year pandemic that really fucked up our food supply and uh, just our supply, uh, our chain of supply in general, especially in meatpacking facilities. Um, so uh, ignoring a lot of context here just to go fuck Democrats. So that's good. ...are going up dramatically because nobody can find employees there. The incentive is for people not to work. And when you incentivize people not to work, they don't work. So you really have... Re so the, the, the argument being made here uh, is like um, implying that unemployment is uh, feeding this, uh, this idea that there's no reason to return to work because the state will provide for you. Um, even though the state can cut off unemployment incredibly easily and you will be left with nothing. But the thing is, though, is I feel like it speaks more about the job market itself. If people prefer to stay on unemployment simply for the monetary value, telling me that the job market isn't offering enough money to people who are currently on unemployment. So I don't really think that's a, a problem of the government. It does says it does say more about our economic system rather that uh, they would continue to offer starvation wages especially after the pandemic increasing billionaires wealth exponentially so um, we're not making a very great case here for McDonald's restaurants facing a, a, a crisis uh, that and the, and coming out of the pandemic which put a lot of restaurants out of business so what McDonald's is looking at, if McDonald's adopts it, it will spread throughout. Those same businesses who got put, at, like, who who failed during the pandemic were very unlikely to have the resources to even implement AI if the wages were to go up. So, like, this, again, we're, we're setting a standard for, like, globalized multinational corporations and then applying it to small businesses as if they will ever be on the same level of, like, resource engagement and they never will be so setting a different like setting similar standards for mcdonald's to like um i don't know some local restaurant it's not equivocal and it's not kind of how we should be shaping policies um, especially since mcdonald's is globalized and can be found around the planet about the industry so so it's a real possibility yeah so okay so if artificial intelligence does get used at restaurants like McDonald's what group of people does that hurt the most because we were told that a $15 minimum wage would be a compassionate solution yeah that that's really just so wrong look there was a study out of Brookings uh, back a few years ago that said if you uh, graduate from high school get a full-time job and wait until you're 21 years old to get married you have a 2% chance of ending up in poverty and a 75% chance of entering the middle class. And the job didn't have to be a white collar job. It could be a full-time job in a McDonald's or anywhere else. So when when you kill these jobs, when you kill these... I mean, I'm not too familiar with that Brookings study, but I've heard it a few times. Like Ben Shapiro uses it all the time that if you you know graduate high school, uh, marry after you're 21, and uh, what, was, what was the other one? Buy a house or some shit? There's there's three prerequisites to uh, being able to move economically. Entering the middle class. Let me see. Here. Get a full time job and wait until you're 21 years old to get married. You have a two percent. Okay, so a high school diploma, a full time job, and a um, getting married after 21 increases your likelihood of moving into the middle class. Um, I feel like there's a lot of information that we're missing here um let me see 
three simple rules tool teens should follow is the name of the study to join the middle class. Do 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 do. All right. Policy aimed at promoting economic opportunity for poor children must be framed within three stark realities. First, many poor children come from families that do not give them the kind of support that middle class children get from their families. Yeah, because they because they don't have the same financial. What the? Yeah, no shit. Second, as a result, these children enter kindergarten far behind their more advantaged peers and on average never catch up and even fa uh, fall further behind. Mm hmm. Okay. Third, in addition to the education deficit, poor children are more likely to make bad decisions that lead them to drop out of school, become teen parents, and join gangs and break the law. <laughs> Again, this um, mostly tells me that it has more to do with the you know starting line of your in of your economic status. If you start out poor, you have a higher likelihood of remaining poor. But they want to argue here the case that if you graduate high school you don't marry until you're 21 and then get a full-time job that you will then break the cycle of poverty that your family for some reason found themselves in as if they didn't do those things either so i'm just going to continue reading here out of pure curiosity in addition to the thousands of local and national programs that aim to help young people avoid these life-altering problems we should figure out more ways to convince young people that their decisions will greatly influence whether they avoid poverty and enter the middle class let politicians, school teachers, administrators, community leaders, ministers, and parents drill into their children the message that in any free society, they enter adulthood with three major responsibilities. At first, at least finish high school, get a full-time job, and wait till the age of 21 to get married and have children. Our research shows that of American adults who followed these three simple rules, only about 2% are in poverty, and nearly 75% have joined the middle class. So that actually doesn't provide the likelihood of you being able to move poverty. That's just the the demographics that fit inside the middle class. And 75% of them have finished high school, gotten a full-time job, and have waited until the age of 21 to get married. But again, that's, there's not like a deep enough breakdown here of the demographics specifically. Um, there are surely influencers other than these three principles to, at play. Of course there are, but following them guides a young adult away from poverty and toward the middle class. I, do, I really don't know like how getting married at 21 after that is going to increase your economic status unless you're like, you're looking at your marriage with like economic value entailed in it. Um, so weird. Uh, consider an example. Today, more than 40% of American children, including more than 70% of black children and 50% of Hispanic children are born outside marriage. Hmm. This unprecedented rate of non-marital births. Uh, so like what I find odd here too, is that we then break down the demographics of, uh, minority kids who were born outside of marriage, but does, it doesn't necessarily, uh, have any correlation to do with their economic status as well because i think that information of like how many how many of the 70 percent of black children are living in poverty how many of the 50 percent of hispanic children are living in poverty not just necessarily um born outside of marriage i feel like the economic status that this whole thing 
study is built around needs that context as well, but maybe I'm wrong. This unprecedented rate of non-marital births combined with the nation's high divorce rate means that around half of children will spend part of their childhood. And for a considerable number of uh, these all of their childhood in a single parent family. As hard as single parents try to give their children a healthy home environment, children in female-headed families are four or more times as likely as children from married couple families to live in poverty. Okay. In turn, poverty is associated with a wide range of negative outcomes in children, including school dropout and out-of-wedlock birds uh the 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 little bit of problem here is that yes it is probably more likely for a single mother to be in poverty since she doesn't necessarily have a lot of uh, resources outside of maybe starting her own business or getting very high up on the uh corporate ladder or you know just many different jobs that could offer better opportunities but working a full-time job trying to take care of your child some of them are even trying to go to school so that they can increase their economic um status there's just so much going into this that i feel like when we cherry pick information like this or at least give it out of context it's not giving us a full framed picture and is still just finding excuses to uh sell us this uh you know like really rigid line of existing in america um because like marriage itself may provide you two different incomes but that's not necessarily going to give you a healthy home or a uh good support system like that doesn't necessarily guarantee it um so especially since they acknowledged here that like half of marriages end um that's that's uh, that there's just so much to this that i i feel like it's not Okay. Uh, it is sometimes said that Americans are turning their back on the marriage culture, the high divorce rate, soaring non-marital birth rate, and consequent rise of single-parent families are certainly weakening marriage as an institution. Uh, I don't really like marriage as an institution. I think it should be something that's solely about being in love and having a bond. Something that has to deal with economics and uh, you know societal and cultural issues. I don't like that marriage has such a tie to it. But look again and discover that college-educated women have high marriage rates, low non-marital birth rates, and low diver- divorce rates. The marriage culture seems to be alive and well for those with a college degree. Uh, these families usually not only have enough money to afford good schools for their children, but they also provide a stable fa- family environment. That allows children to flourish. And we got absolutely no statistics on that. Um, it, it just says it, that um, women who have higher education are less likely to be divorced. All right. Uh, the recent attacks by Planned Parenthood on Michael Bloomberg, New York City's mayor for launching a campaign designed to inform teenagers of the consequences of teen pregnancy, provides a good example of how many in our society face the effects of non-marital births on teen mothers and their children. In one of the campaign posters, a baby with tears rolling down his face says, quote, I'm twice as likely not to graduate high school because you had me as a teen, unquote. Another shows a girl saying to her mom, quote, chances are he won't stay with you. What happens to me? Unquote. Planned Parenthood criticized the ads displayed in the subway and bus shelters for ignoring racial and economic factors that contribute to teen pregnancy. Other critics say the ads stigmatize teen parents and their children. 
Granted, most teen moms are from low-income families and face a number of barriers to success. Along comes Bloomberg with a direct message to get the attention of teenage girls and warn them not to make their situation worse and to think more about their future. If the mother wants to improve her future by continuing her education, being a teenage parent is precisely the wrong way to do. Okay, so I'm going to be honest. I'm going to stop reading this at this point because it is building a case on how having a child before marriage in your teen years can hurt your economic future no one's really disputing that but the statistic here isn't that you're two percent like if you're born into a um or if you if you don't meet these three requirements um so our shows that adults who follow these three simple rules, only about 2% are in poverty and 75% have joined the middle class. So like these aren't likelihoods. If you do these things, you will be successful. It's just that these are the percentages of people who did these things and that's why they're in the middle class. But there's so many other factors to take into consideration here of their upbringing, their education, their uh, the, the, the racial status, the neighborhoods that they did grow up in. There's so many other factors in here to kind of build on what made that individual successful into getting into the middle class. But it's not a likelihood thing as uh, this guy in the Fox News segment portrays it out to be. It's merely data just telling us how many Americans are in this area meeting these three requirements or these three responsibilities, as they put it. So it's not a likelihood. It's just th those are the numbers of how many people are there. Chance of ending up in poverty and a 75 percent chance of entering the middle class. See, see how he uses the word chance. There's no chance involved. These are 75% of people in the middle class meet these three requirements. And the job didn't have to be a white collar job. It could be a full-time job in a McDonald's or anywhere else. This also is not um, backed up with any evidence whatsoever, uh, especially through the study that I just looked through. Um, it does not provide any specific jobs that will uh, get, get you to the middle class. And uh, as I was reading it, the rest of it was mostly about avoiding teen pregnancy. I will provide the, the study in the, in the description so you can check it out. Um, but I do remember a few years back that McDonald's did put out kind of like a budget plan for their employees so that they can better uh, move their money around. And the, the budget really like highlighted how much they don't really understand what it's like to live on the wage that McDonald's offers while also simultaneously telling people to get a second job. That if you work a full-time job at McDonald's in order to excel and meet your bills and, you know, survive, you should get a second job. So not even McDonald's can back up that claim that if you work a full-time job at McDonald's, you would be working at a livable wage. Like not even McDonald's can prove that. So when, when you kill these jobs, when you kill these entry-level jobs, when you don't let people get on the ladder of opportunity, the people you're hurting are young Americans, and they've already been hurt. They've already and that is the choice of McDonald's. Rather than raising the, ra the wages, rather than bringing them up to what inflation would have had them at, say, by 2012, which was around like $20 an hour, if we had actually raised the wages, we might not see the discrepancy of uh, people not wanting to leave unemployment and go work for these companies because they don't offer very many benefits. The, the the upward trajectory in moving into moving upwards in a McDonald's isn't that great either. 
Although they do offer programs to send you to a, a schooling, a business schooling for McDonald's to move up uh, in through the managerial experience. There's still more to offer in, in lines of like PTO, um, maternal leave, health benefits uh, that McDonald's doesn't quite have in every location inside the United States. But it is... Um, it is specifically McDonald's apathetic policy to um, initiate AI rather than increasing its livable wage standard um, that is lacking in compassion, not the raising of the wage and somehow forcing McDonald's to go into automation. It's the choice to do the automation, to make those jobs um, ineligible for human service. You, you see the problem here. So McDonald's is choosing to protect their profits rather than w raising what what the capitalist calls their, their, their liability or basically what they're paying uh, so that they can keep the increase in their profits. And the United States is very uh, unique in this because we are one of the, you know, uh, wealthiest countries to have McDonald's that that McDonald's does not pay livable wages or even offer maternity leave and PTO other ones in the european union do so we don't really have a lot of excuse why americans don't already lost a year because of this pandemic so to hurt them further is insanity it's just it, economic insanity yeah how do you feel about the may jobs numbers a hundred thousand jobs short of expectations uh do you think that it should be higher at this point <laughs> you know really if you think back to the trump administration Every time economic data came out, whether it was news or GDP, no matter what it was, the, the phrase that always showed up in the press releases was exceeds economist expectations, which was a reversal from the Obama era when the press used to, the economists used to make these, these very, um, uh, you know, bright predictions as to where the economy was going. Well, we're back to the bright predictions, yeah. but reality is, is, uh, is not meeting the predictions. And this is going to continue because the, the, the economists believe that this government spending actually works, that the government can spend its way to prosperity. It, we can't spend our way to prosperity. Government spending is not going to do Then why is it every time that a big corporation fails, like in the 2008 housing bubble, why is it that when we stimulated the, the economy by bailing them all out, was it only then that we avoided a Great Depression? So, like, you can say that federal spending isn't going to help anything, and yet every time the economy takes a dip, we just pump money into Wall Street, and I never hear you guys complain about it. Do anything permanent. It's not helping create jobs. It's hurting. The policies are hurting job creation. Uh, so I, I think we're going to see this more going forward. The fascinating thing to me, too, is that he doesn't highlight any specific policies that harm uh, the working class, except for raising the minimum wage, which is exactly what Fox News does, which is uh, convince you to uh, work against your best interests. That that's it. That's that right there. Rather than holding McDonald's accountable to offer livable, decent uh, wages for their workers, um, we're going to make the excuse that these are a bunch of ungrateful ingrates and they should just have their jobs automated. There, problem solved. All right, so um, moving on to uh, uh, just a barrage of Ben Shapiro. Um, this one begins from way back i don't even know when this one came out but it was so my question it was pre-covid days for sure there's a crowd and this is back when ben shapiro would really go viral just for like talking to people in the crowd oh look oh look 
Shapiro reveals the three keys to escaping generational poverty. Look. Oh my god. I didn't I didn't even know that was going to be one of the segments and that guy literally just quoted this study. Let's let's hear Ben just regurgitate the same same exact rhetoric. Question uh just sort of focuses on two sort of different things you've been talking about. Uh one which is focusing on uh, the decisions people make and how that influences how successful they are. And two you made a comment my favorite thing is in and, and I'm going to sound like really hyperbolic and hypothetical to a lot of conservatives but the, the the what I find very funny here is that the focus is on moving individuals out of poverty rather than doing using society and governmental tools to eliminate poverty um so I I I like the conservative position that people can move out of poverty but poverty is going to be a thing no matter what as if like the income inequality has nothing to do with the level of poverty that we see in this country. Saying um, in America, we don't afford you, you know, equality of wealth or things like that. We give you equality of access. Well, equal access to rights, not not equal okay, access. So, OK, there is a difference. What I mean yes. by equal access to rights, obviously, uh, is I mean that no one's going to get in your way, that the rights that you hold are the same as the rights that I hold. But when I'm say and, and if somebody blocks them, then that's blocking your access. But. What I don't mean is that a person who has a million dollars in the bank is equally situated with a person with five dollars in the bank, because obviously that's stupid. Uh, yes, and I, I would agree that that's stupid. Um, <laughs> Good, um, we're in agreement on stupidity. All right. Yeah, um, something we can agree on. Um, so, um, I, I do want to sort of extend that into, I, I do personally believe that the number one factor in a lot of these sort of things are the decisions you make. Um, but a lot of what affects your decisions is sort of where you start out, and sometimes that's like a long sort of cultural argument and things like that, True. but other times it's something more basic like, well, if you weren't born into as wealthy a family, it's harder to go to a nicer college, and you're pressured yep. to take another job so you don't finish high school, or you have to take care of, you know, it's a single parent household, which you didn't decide, your parents made poor decisions. Um, yes, but then you have to take care of your I like how too, like the idea that a single parent household must mean that somebody made a poor decision as if like people don't lose, you know, uh, either a mother or a father by circumstances of like a, a health crisis like cancer or a car accident. Um, any numerous of things that would cause you to lose a parent that doesn't actually involve poor decision making. Like that, that statistic or that idea just isn't included in the discussion whatsoever. That if it's a single parent, they must have just made bad decisions. Or little siblings or things like that. So then it becomes harder for you to maintain your job and you lose that. So I think um, there's a lot of sort of things that 100% this is correct, yeah. Three sort of key tickets you've talked about that are heavily influenced by factors entirely out of a person's Well, control. I mean, not having babies out of wedlock is definitely not influenced by factors beyond your control. I mean, unless you have uncontrollable genitalia. So that's it. So, you know, the, so the fact is that... Yeah, so, but if, if, if the condom breaks or the birth control fails, that's the individual's fault, even though they did take the necessary precautions to try and have a contraceptive. So, like, again, we're making, like, a hasty generalization on single parents here that I don't think is very fair. Just because you had a single mom doesn't mean that you have to follow in the pattern. Bottom line is that when you have cycles of poverty, somebody's going to have to break that at some point, and that's going to take an act of will. When it comes to graduating from high school, the number of people who are dropping out of high school because they need to you know, support their family uh, is incredibly low in the United States. But if that's the case, then you know, I, 
I'll give you an example. There's a, there's a listener of mine who's a young woman, I think she's probably 18 years old, uh, who emailed me the other day. And she said, you have your three rules, right? No, don't have babies before marriage and, and get, finish high school and then get a job. And she said, I love your show. I agree with everything you say. I also broke one of those rules. So I have a baby. I had a baby when I was 15 years old. And what should I do about that? And I said, well, I replied to her. And I said, well, what, what's your social structure like? What, do you have a, your parents nearby who can help out with your kid? Do you have a church that you belong to, people who you can rely on? And she said, well, I'm not really a member of a church. I don't have like a huge social structure. I have my mom. My mom's also a single mom because you know, there are these pathologies where, where there are generations of single mothers. Uh, and, uh, and so what should I do? And she said, well, I, I went ahead and I got my GED. And now I'm trying to go to community college, but I don't have money for childcare. I don't have money for childcare. My mom works. So what should I do? And I said, well, why don't you put together a GoFundMe and get it to me, and I'll push it out there. And so she sent me a GoFundMe. I put 100 bucks in the kitty. and, and Like, I amazing. Rather than focusing on government programs that could truly help the citizens, Ben Shapiro says, why don't you throw me your GoFundMe? Like, honestly, just give me a link to your GoFundMe, and I will find a bunch of people who will help you survive. Like, what? honestly, what does that speak about our society that we have to constantly go on a website to ask for money in the same way that a panhandler does on the street just so that we can meet our basic necessities? That's wild. An hour and a half later, she had $6,000. And he says it like it's normal and it's okay and it's fine as if like our, like our government, like he is okay with the government abandoning people and having to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. But then apparently the bootstraps also entails just asking strangers for money rather than having strong economic or political programs that would help millions of people rather than one single individual. Uh, the reason that I did that and the reason that I tell the story is not because I'm such a wonderful dude, although I am. The reason that I, the, the, the reason that I tell this story is because there is a world of willing people who are willing to give and help you escape these things if you want to make the effort. There's whole groups of people out there. There's whole organizations dedicated to helping you escape making bad decisions, dedicated to helping you get out of poverty. And if people need to find these things, then please email me, email your church, email your synagogue. There are entire religions dedicated to this. And this idea that these are, there are these inescapable chains of poverty that no decision you make can help you escape these things, you know, if that's true, then we're not doing a good enough job on a... If, if we don't end the living in poverty, if we don't end poverty, the cycle of poverty will never end. So ending it for a single individual, while that is an achievement and while that is something to be proud of, it's not really because it perpetuates the cycle of capitalism that allows the suffrage of millions of people. And when a pandemic happens, forces 8 million people below the poverty line and 40 million kids not having enough food on their plates. So this idea that we have to look into these like NGOs that are just out there that nobody has access to, or we have to look for strangers to throw their money our way, rather than focus on strong community organization that will build a strong political movement to get people policies that work in their favor rather, the cor rather than the corporations, it's, it's just perpetuating capitalism's worst tendencies private level. Um, but I don't think it's true. I think the American people are the most generous people on the face of the earth. Statistically speaking, that is eminently true. Uh there, there was a study that came out that Americans are one of the most generous people on uh, the earth because we do donate a lot of money to charity. And that, and that is a fact that Ben Shapiro has correct. Uh, Republicans, by the way, do give much more money to charity than Democrats, mainly because... That part I do not know. <laughs> like...
<laughs> oh man, I don't know that part for sure. I guess I can Google it right now. I don't. Uh, who did? Okay. Why does everything have to be a partisan issue all the time? Uh, Republicans give more to charity. All right. This study came out in 2018. Republicans give more to charity than Democrats, but there's a bigger story here. Huh. I don't even know the nonprofit quarterly. Okay. Uh-huh. The political differences between Republicans and Democrats don't play out solely at the ballot box. They also predict how likely people are to donate to charity. This finding from a newly published research project reflects a key difference, one tied to political affiliation, about how our nation should take on critical social issues like homelessness, poverty, and health care. The data also suggests that in times of political strife, both parties' supporters pull back. Nice. When we need everyone the most. Nice. So using voting and IRS data for the residents of 3,000 counties across the nation, the four-professor research team found, according to the New York Times, that counties which are overwhelmingly Republican report higher charitable contributions than Democratic-dominated counties, although, quote, giving in blue counties is often bolstered by a combination of charitable donations and higher taxes. But as red or blue counties become more politically competitive, charitable giving tends to fall. One can conclude this shows the Republican Party is, despite the controversial wisdom, the party that cares about those in need and puts in money where its mouth is. But the true picture is more complex, reflecting at best a real difference between the parties in the best way to approach the challenge of human need. Because the range of organizations and activities that are supported by uh, tax deductible giving is very wide. It's not clear how these funds are actually used or what motive motives they reflect. Yeah. Also, too, like my cynical side says that Republicans are donating more to have more um, uh, tax deductions. Um, but it's a very uh, Carnegie uh, Hall, uh, not Carnegie Hall. That's not his name. I don't even remember his first name. But Carnegie was a econ uh, economist, and I think in Britain or no, New York, New York, uh, of, of the United States. I don't keep track of rat rich people that much. Um, but Carnegie was like a big proponent of m making sure that he controlled his money. He, he was very much against taxes and the government dictating where that would money go and how it would be used. He was more into building organizations and being a philanthropist in the same way that Bill Gates is, is that it's his best decision to choose where these resources go and who it helps. And so I feel like that methodology of thinking there does translate very well into Republicans. Uh, I feel like Carnegie was a conservative of his time, so um, it makes a lot of sense. I don't think a lot of people know Carnegie or know that idea, and that's where it goes to, but I think that it's a more... Um, bigger through line here that they're more interested in giving to NGOs and organizations while also uh, opposing welfare programs through the government because they would much rather have these organizations that work similar to the corporation style um, rather than the, the big government telling everybody how we're going to do things. So it, it's very much on brand. It makes sense. Um, I am genuinely surprised, um, but uh, Democrats, what the fuck? Because they're religious. 
Um, and uh, oh, but Ben says it's because they're religious. <laughs> oh, oh, that's right. Uh, Democrats don't donate because they're Satanists. That's right. Forgot. And so. Our goal as individuals, not as a society, because I don't like to talk about our goals as a quote-unquote society. Our goals as individuals should be to help people make the right decisions so they can escape these, these bad decisions that they were about to make. Uh, and, other, and people's goals... Why would you focus in on goals of individuals that make up a society rather than the goals of the society which takes the participation of individuals? Like that, that really just even more feeds the cap, like the negative capitalist tendencies on an Ayn Randian level of forget all but... Uh, uh, gain wealth and forget all but self or some shit like that that's, that's exactly the individualism that like not only fascism feeds on but the alienation that capitalism feeds on that atomizes us in all of our neighborhoods not making a real strong communal uh, bond unless you join a church or join a certain type of organization it isn't just enough to be a citizen of America you have to then find some kind of faction or tribe within that and that's your community that's the problem that I find with this uh, I, like atomization of individuals is that it's more focused on the selfish interests and needs, which then, you know, really gives this massive excuse to massive corporations to do shitty shit. And then it just doesn't really build a strong organization for um, individuals to come together and fight bigger powers. So uh, good for you, Ben. As individuals should also be not to make the bad decisions. These, these, these cycles cannot be broken by a government coming in and trying to fix them. Government tried to fix poverty in 1964. And the war on poverty has now been going for half a century, and by percentage, the same number of people are poor. Okay, so th this is just not working. We're going to need to do something else, and it's going to need to come down to individual decision-making. Uh, just to end this... Um... I, I want to thank you for your personal kind charity, uh, especially... You don't have to. I didn't give you money. Uh, <laughs> I can thank you for your kindness to others, um, and I am very appreciative of everyone who does that. I just uh, personally don't believe that that's going to be uh, the solution for everyone out there. Uh, but once again, I, I thank you for coming and speaking here, and I thank you for advancing the cause of charity, even if you do it in a way that is politically different from my own. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. All right. That was a nice way to end that. Uh, that's what like good faith discourse sounds like, even if Ben had to use a bunch of mischaracterization and misrepresentation to get his point across. Um, all right, all right. The next one, Shapiro explains why communism is evil. Hello, Mr. Shapiro. My name is Joey Stone. I'm from Vandon High School in Fairfield, California. I was just wondering, what are your views on Colorado's new, I guess, option to push communism at all costs? What to the push fuck? Communism. Communism? Uh, well, I mean, I'm not aware of the, the kind of provision that you're talking about in Colorado. Yeah, who is? What? This was years ago, but like, what? what? What state ever has been like, go ahead, push as much communism as you can? Who? What? When? Where? Why? And how? What? Wow, 20 seconds in. All right. Well... Uh, so I'd, I'd have to be familiar with, with what the provision is of law. Obviously, communism bad. Also evil. Also True. killed 100 million people. So I'm, I'm bewildered by people. I'm, I'm bewildered by people who, who are, are romantic toward communism. It's, it's, it is a 
So the thing is that also too that they always like uh, use the hundred million uh, dead people excuse as to why communism com- communism is evil, and Bad Mouse Productions has a very good YouTube channel, and on a very specific video, he actually accounts the death toll of capitalism, which has been in uh, full force since you know for over four hundred to five hundred years now. And, you know, the, the, the odd thing is, is whenever they condemn um, the Stalin regime, we seem to, for some reason, ignore the East India Company and the massive famine that they caused with their capitalist motives. They're, like the, the fact that a company colonized a part of India, making it essentially like this weird corporate nation state that they effectively killed like 30 million people with a famine there. That's something that we seem to ignore when we're always talking about these death tolls that come from economic systems. So um, I would say check out Bad Mouse's video, uh, Getting the Capitalist Death Toll, because while um, Stalin's, Stalin's regime did lead to a lot of unnecessary death and a lot of condemnable actions. Um, capitalism isn't innocent because of that. A, a gift of being of growing up in a... One, one thing that all the communists who live in America have in common is that they live in America. Yeah, it's, it's a, it, what? Move to Cuba and then tell me how wonderful communism is without being a part of the prevailing regime. Well, and here's the thing is I don't like Cuba's uh, model of communism, especially since the workers don't own the means of production and there's a lack of democracy going on there. So um, me being a far left leaning person, um, I don't like Cubans, uh, Cuba's model of communism whatsoever. I don't like China's model and I don't like Russia's model. I don't like Venezuela's model. There's not many models out there that I actually like except for Rojava to an extent, but that one hasn't even really been given the chance to really cultivate its, uh, its nation or its sovereignty or I- its society because they're at war with, uh, Syria and the Islamic state. So, um, the Paris Commune was a nice model for the short amount of time that it lasted. Uh, Catalonia, same thing. It was a nice model, but again, it was just riddled with war, so they weren't really able to develop as much as most nations would have if they weren't in war. Um, but a lot of these ones that are known as socialists and communists these days, I don't like their models because they tend to be authoritarian dictatorships. Um, so that that's my contention. Thank you. It's, it's, it's easy for Michael Moore to talk about the glories of the, the Cuban healthcare system while he has his WGA card. Uh, it's, it's a little bit different when, when Michael Moore, you know, would have to live there, which of course he never will. The, the, the people who are the most anti-communism in America are people who left communist countries, right, who actually lived in these places. There's such an inherent level of ingratitude in America right now, it's astonishing to me. People who, people who were born on third base. Well, it's very odd to be like unconditionally, like um, to give unconditional gratitude to the United States. Um, I have a certain level of gratitude because, yes, I don't want to live in Cuba. I don't want to live in China. And I certainly don't want to live in Russia. But that doesn't mean that America is just like absolved of all criticism and all of its flaws. Like it is honestly just as flawed as China and Russia, although we excel in different areas of either democracy or freedom of speech, stuff like that. We might have certain markers that are better than those societies, but that doesn't mean that the United States is absolved from any criticism whatsoever. 
whatever. And that's really like a late, like intellectually lazy position to take because like American exceptionalism is what, like one of the biggest things I would critique in American exceptionalism tells you that you should love the United States no matter what. And I hate that idea. I hate that idea because it allows atrocities to go on, like uh, the massacres in Fallujah, and it allows that to be swept under the rug. The massacres in Vietnam, the massacres in Tulsa, in our own borders, like that just allows all of that to be swept under the rug and be like, well, we moved past it, even though we didn't really because nobody faced accountability for these actions. Oh, man. Jason, think they hit a triple. People who, people who live in the most prosperous, free, and wonderful country in the history of the world, bar none, not close. If you could be born any time in any place, it would be right here and right now. You're guaranteed basically eight decades on this earth of health, wealth, and ease. And you're sitting around going, you know it would be better if we got rid of everything that undergirds this, and then we do stuff that's fair. And fair means what I... Everything that uh, that undergirds it, which, like, for a lot of communists, it's the imperialism, which is, like, forcing other nations to do our bidding. Um, the racism, which forces minorities to do our bidding. Um, like, those, those underpinnings, Ben, are those the ones that we're talking about? Or are we talking about the greedy capitalism that allows uh, Jeff Bezos to be a trillionaire while we have millions of Americans starving? Um, it's just... It, it's very interesting what he says is what like what makes america great is what they're trying to destroy and then when i look at what america what supposedly makes america great ends up creating suffrage for an immense amount of people um so i like well i'm sorry but the world did not begin spinning when you got here the principles that you hold are not unique to you and your wealth is not a natural part of life. People, people tend to just believe that this is normal, that what happens in America is normal, that the norm of human life is this. That is so not only historically ignorant, but just ignorant of contemporaneous circumstance anywhere outside the West. It, if, if people actually had the ability to take a time machine, then they might be a little bit more grateful for what it is they have here in the United States. And fortunately, there is a time machine. It's called an airplane. All you have to do is take that airplane to a third world country. And you will quickly recognize that the United States is a damned phenomenal place. It depends on what third world country you visit, because that third world country might be a third world country specifically due to American imperialism. And I'm speaking mostly about Central and South America. We meddled so much there that their infrastructure has been fucked for decades. So I, I really don't want to hear going to a third world country and comparing it to the United States when the United States goes out of its way to fuck with the sovereignty of other nations. That is a poor excuse. Um, yeah, so uh, moving on from that uh, shitbag, we got another one. Hey. Ben Shapiro explains the beauty of the free market. Ben, howdy. Uh, so I've been following you since uh, your Piers Morgan interview years back. That was awesome. Uh, question. So I hear you put a lot of emphasis on the free market fixing, uh, for example, like racism and being self-regulatory. A pure example of this is if a business refuses business to a minority, a competing business will pop up and steal the business of folks who found the former business immoral, and that will run the racist business out of business. You're following yes. me here. All right. no, I got you. 
All right, so with a country so large as the United States, couldn't there still be enough niche market to keep the original business afloat? If there is enough of a niche market to keep it afloat, does the government have the responsibility to make it illegal to refuse service based on the color of someone's skin, or do you see that as government overreach setting bad precedent? So I think that there's certainly niche markets for racism. I mean, there's still people who sell racist crap online and, and do just fine with it. Um, but the question is, are these people who are going to thrive? And also, are we willing to sacrifice your right to freedom of association in order to crack down on a few bad actors? And this is always the question when it comes to rights. It's the same question with gun rights. Are we willing to crack down on hundreds of millions of, uh, on 100 million gun owners in the United States in order to get the few bad actors? Are we willing to crack down on... What about when those few bad actors are specifically using, um, like, bigoted tactics uh, by denying service specifically due to your religion, your race, or your uh, political ideology? Uh, those forms of discrimination have led to like high levels of persecution and violence that to say it's okay on a microaggression level is just like a step away from kind of making those arguments to have them happen again on a more violent platform. So I think it's a very unfortunate argument that we're going at here that freedom of association is what's going to help dictate this because if everybody knows that's a bigoted, you know, uh, uh, baker. Um, that, you know, less people are going to go to that market. Still, their racist uh, market might be able to keep them afloat and they're allowed to continue pushing bigoted, um, I don't know, they, 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 they might support certain movements or uh, organizations, protests or stuff like that that will further the bigotry of other uh, parts of this nation. So, you know, it's not good to create blanket laws that'll punish people who don't participate in these discriminatory practices. But that doesn't necessarily mean that as a society, we have to allow discrimination to continue because at some point the free market will destroy them. Freedom of association for hundreds of millions of people in order so that we get a few bad actors, particularly when the market prevents these people from becoming- Especially too, since Ben Shapiro spends most of his time building the divide in the culture war so that when somebody is called racist, that he can refute it, bring them over to his side, and everybody that is in his entertainment or in his, in his pool of followers and listeners, then they too will still have an area for them to make money and get their points across still. So it's it's not effective. I don't, like, yes, the racists and the bigots are a minority in this country, but that doesn't mean that there isn't millions of them. Coming wildly successful. They are punished by the market because if you're a racist, you can only cater to that niche as opposed to being able to cater to a, to a broader possible audience. The best example of, of integration, by the way, through the free market uh, is Woolworths. The, the Woolworths counter, which was boycotted in 1960 before the Civil Rights Act by a bunch of black students who walked in and they said that they wanted to be served. And the restaurant said, well, by local law, we cannot serve you. And they said, well, we're just going to sit here until you do. And pretty soon the entire Woolworths chain changed its segregation policy. And that's because there were a bunch of people who said, we're not going to shop there anymore, right? The Montgomery bus boycott is another example of this sort of stuff working. I think that that is, is effective. I think it's actually more effective. See, and that wasn't the free market. Those, that, the, those were people doing very specific organizing and demonstrating. Like that has literally nothing to do with the market and more to do with direct democracy in left-leaning movements that Ben Shapiro rails against constantly. So um, he even argued against his own point while making his point, but is still going to circle that back around to the free market is what was swayed in the end by that. Not public opinion, not the demonstrations, but the market.
effective now than it was then, because then you're at least bound by location, right? What if there was no competing business that could find a place to rent across the street? Now everything's online. So you can get anything online. Now, all these people who are walking into Christian bakers and demanding that they serve their same-sex wedding, first of all, if you can't find a gay baker in the United States, I don't know where you live. But second of all... <laughs> But second of all, there are lots of cake-making companies that you can go online and just buy a cake from them. And if that Christian is willing to lose the business, well, then the Christian's willing to lose the business. It seems to me that's a much better cure for the problem of, of supposed discrimination than saying that we are going as a government to regulate who you can and cannot serve as a, as a client. Uh, as as I, pointed, I pointed this out to, to Jimmy Kimmel, who was doing this, one of my favorite punching bags. Uh, the amazing thing to me is, is that, yes, it would eliminate the individual freedom to choose who you can serve in your business, but it would try to move towards a more equitable society by saying, hey, don't discriminate against anybody no matter what. It's, it's, it's a blanket to be like, allow everybody. That's equality. So... Um, been arguing pro freedom of association which takes an anti-position against equality that's 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 the hill he's chosen to die on jimmy kimmel was was saying this about exactly this case with the gay bakers and i said well jimmy i would like for you to write me a comedy routine about the nastiness and horrors of hillary clinton and barack obama and i demand you do so right now Right, this is your Which he did on the internet for spectacle, and I'm not even really sure that he writes jokes for other people ever, so I'm not sure that he takes requests. Your skill set, how dare you deny me service? Just because I'm a conservative, you're going to deny me service? That's discrimination. And then he did all of that, as if Jimmy Kimmel actually responded to him. How could you do such a thing? The same principle that allows Jimmy Kimmel to refuse me service allows the, the Christian couple to refuse to serve the same-sex wedding. Um, and I'm... I'm pretty extreme when it comes to you know, the freedom of association. I think that you should be able to reject anybody from your business you want to, even if you're a piece of crap and you reject people you really shouldn't. I still have a problem no matter what. Like Freedom of association is fine, um, but I have a problem that when you don't provide a service to people based on their race, their sexual orientation, their gender, or... Um, their ideology um that's a level of discriminatory bigotry that for uh, a millennia uh for a very long time has led to violence so you can make that apologist argument for uh small businesses if you want to but it it tends to lead to worse rhetoric and a worsening environment uh socially so good on you ben uh and then we're gonna close it out with this prager you video i watched like five seconds of it cackled my ass off and uh yeah and it's funny too because we've been doing the the whole brooking institute you know get married get a job uh graduate high school and prager used video that came out this morning is called our fathers necessary i watched five seconds of it laughed and then decided this is going to be the last thing on the segment so uh let's get it our fathers necessary for all of recorded history the need to explain why fathers are necessary would have been regarded as, well, unnecessary. It would have been like explaining why water or air is necessary. But we live at a time in which the obvious is root. Those things, um, oh God, see, this is what I'm talking about. So like, how are fathers equivalent to water, which sustains all life on this platform, and also air? Um, and when we're speaking about fathers, are we, speaking in like the sperm donor sense that we need them in order to perpetuate 
the species or are we talking about fathers in the sense of the um, archetypal role that they play in our family structure um, because either or are not going to be as important as water or air because those things sustain all life on the planet whereas humans at this point in time at the recording of this podcast are uh, effectively destroying the planet so um it's a it, we're we're already in weird murky territory routinely denied there have been articles in the most prestigious journals denying the importance of fathers the atlantic magazine for example published an article titled are fathers necessary a paternal contribution may not be as essential as we think the new york times published a discussion among five intellectuals titled what are fathers for? One of them, Hannah Rosen, an editor at New York Magazine, opened her response by stating, I'm not sure whether a child needs a father. I could give dozens of such examples. I'll just give one more. HuffPost published a piece titled, Fathers Are Not Needed. Fortunately, this dismissal of the importance of fathers is not universal. In a 2008... I really liked too how like the headlines of these articles were enough for Prager to be like I disagree rather than getting into like the information themselves within the articles the headlines were enough for him to be like they're wrong so that really tells you how intellectually in-depth Dennis Prager is when he's arguing these issues is that if the headline if the premise is something he disagrees with he doesn't want to hear the rest of the argument Nate Father's Day speech a few months before his election as President of the United States, Barack Obama said, fathers are critical to the foundation of each family. That they are teachers and coaches, they are mentors and role models, they are examples of success, and they are the men who constantly push us toward it. Yeah, but that's the thing is that like you could say that about women too. You could say they are teachers and coaches. They are mentors and role models. They are examples of success. And they are the women who constantly push us toward it like it's 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 a blanket politician statement that you can replace one word with and it would stay pretty much the same it doesn't build a argument or a case that says you need a father in the household whether we're talking about the sperm donor to perpetuate the, the species or we're talking about the the archetypal role of what a man should be what makes his comments particularly noteworthy is that barack obama grew up without a father both boys and girls need fathers we'll begin with boys a boy has no built-in understanding about how to be a man meaning a good and responsible man see and that's the thing that's like a completely arbitrary and only fits into the societal times because that has always been shifting so um it's very weird that we're going to say that we need a father in there so that we can make sure that this boy knows how to be a man when he grows up as if he's never going to come across any other man that could possibly teach him how to be a man as if that's even required either um because like on top of it prager doesn't acknowledge that gender is on a spectrum and you know the the genitalia doesn't necessarily indicate your gender and the role that you will play in our society so dumb that's that's my first reaction to that male nature is wild most obviously regarding sex and violence if a boy does not have a father who models how a man controls himself he will most likely not know how to control himself seriously so like a boy is just going to come out like hypersexualized and super violent and 
by not having a father to juxtapose that by showing like a father uh, that is like self-controlled but then like that also implies the existence of a father who also doesn't know how to control himself teaching his child the same tendencies so like a father isn't going to fix that problem inherently just good role models on its own would do that good character building will do that and you don't need to have a father necessarily to do that i'm not going to say that having a father isn't a great system of support but it isn't inherently so because no matter what you're going to find flawed human beings no matter where you go and some of them might not be good dads let alone want to that's why most males in prison for violent crimes grew up without a father after days of riots in the there's still a uh, large uh, discussion on poverty to be had with that because um, I'm sure a lot of those violent crimes or, or violent criminals without fathers are also poor. So um, are we going to also talk about how uh, not only having a father is important, but a wealthy father would probably be good. The UK in 2011 quite like the 2020 riots in America, Christina Adone wrote a column for the London Telegraph, whose title says it all. London riots, absent fathers have a lot to answer for. In the column, she wrote, the majority of rioters are gang members. Like the overwhelming majority of youth offenders behind bars, these gang members have one thing in common, no father at home there's no yeah but that honestly just sounds like a conservative talking point for making the case on why they're uh doing this behavior and to just put out a like every conservative does they put out a claim with absolutely no evidence to back it they just say it most they just say most and that's enough to sell you the point or at least enough for dennis prager which seems to be the only the only article he brings up where he read past the headline which is one that agrees with his worldview amazing no question that many mothers have done an excellent job raising a boy without their son's father but common sense alone suggests that a mother simply cannot model what a boy should be any more than a man can model to a girl what a woman should be. And then there is the issue of- And there's like nobody else in society that can be these models. It has to be directly in the household for, for human beings to have mentors or teachers or coaches, as if those aren't very specific jobs out there as well for people. So this is a weird argument to be making of controlling boys and their wild natures. Again, there are mothers who are able to do this. But if a boy is at all difficult, as so many are, as he gets older, most mothers will find it more and more difficult. Oh my God. He is going with the argument of a mother will struggle to control her boy, and as he gets older, the more uncontrollable he will be. Mothers are just not effective at raising boys. Wow. Yeah, fuck yeah. Again, and they're using most mothers will find. There's no evidence to back up this claim whatsoever. We're just using the word most. Like, it, it's doing most of the legwork here. Most is doing most of the legwork in this argument. To control their son. Because unruly boys listen to their fathers much more than they listen to their mothers. Uh, no, there's no fucking proof for that. We're just saying it. Just, just saying it. Yep, just, just say it, and, and it becomes true. Which is precisely why 
most violent criminals grew up in fatherless homes. Again, as if like poverty has nothing to do with this whatsoever. Cool. They obviously did not listen to their mothers. As regards daughters, the father is the man girls learn to relate to. Without a father to relate to and bond with, it's amazing, too, how much like this video is just like downplaying the role of the mother and basically making them sound useless by making even the father more essential to the daughter than the mom in this part of the argument. So the mom is ineffective at raising a boy because they're uncontrollable and she can't understand them. And then the father is the most relatable and easy to bond with a, uh, with the daughter. And the mother fails at that, too. Like, wow. Wow. There are at least two destructive consequences. First, she will not know how to choose a man wisely. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, fathers are the only way for a woman to uh, pick the right partner. And I also like to hear how when they're scrolling through like these, uh, she's uh, like, it's a, it's, a, it's a graphic of her like scrolling through her phone as if she's going on online dating apps to find a partner. They're all dudes. So, like, I appreciate here during Pride Month that uh, PragerU is staying on brand by portraying heterosexual uh, relationships. Very binary. Love it. She will not know how a man should treat her. And she may well end up with a man who mistreats her. Yep. Yeah. It's there's there's like no media to tell you these things. There's no organizations. Um, that will tell you about domestic abuse. There's literally no one out there to tell you about the human experience except for the two people you are born with, your mother and your father. That's it. That's it. And I'm not I'm not trying to downplay the foundational education that parents offer. I'm just thinking it's ridiculous that it has to fit the rigid lines of a nuclear family. Like it's really dumb because not only are we arguing that a single mother household is bad for you, but a two mother household is bad for you. So here's my proposed solution. Since a father is so great at raising children, every family should have two fathers. That will double their chances for success. Thanks to PragerU, I have now come to the realization that two father households will be the most successful in America. Second, to fulfill her desire to bond with a man as primarily yearning. Oh my God. Holy shit. Holy shit. That fathers are around so that daughters have their primal yearning to find approval from a man that's why we need a father in the house holy fuck dude you've reached like a whole new level of ignorance my god in most women as bonding with a woman is in most men she will go from man to man girls without fathers in their lives are far more likely to be sexually promiscuous oh my god <laughs> Oh man, look out, look out guys. You don't want to leave leave your uh, daughter with your mom because she's going to turn out to be a whore. No absolutely no no data shows this. It's just fucking Prager's big-brained deduction working here. My god. Oh. And to begin sexual activity at an earlier age, which in turn are reasons many young women are depressed. 
See, and like these are five minute videos, and like they don't cite any sources. He doesn't cite a single store like study. It takes five seconds to be like as the Brooking Institute study shows, or even no seconds at all by putting like a little display at the bottom of the screen of your sources. No, let's just say shit. Fuck it. Fuck it. They're five minute clips. Few women find sleeping with man after man fulfilling. Most find it ultimately depressing. Finally, yep, there's that word most again. There it is again. Fathers give both sons and daughters the thing children need most, a sense of safety and security. As much as children need love, they need a sense of security even. That's amazing. Uh, so a mom can't offer safety and security, while at the same time his political party will argue that women need to be owning firearms. So even if they own a firearm, your mom's not likely to protect you, kids. You're going to need a father. And thanks to Prager, you have come to the realization that you'll be better off with two fathers. Yes, with two fathers, you have doubled your chances of success. And more. And in general, moms give love and dads give security. I learned how necessary fathers are, not only by having one and being one, but by the many people, men and women of all ages, who have told me that they see me as a father figure. Isn't that amazing? Almost as if you don't need a father directly in your household to have a role model fit that archetypal role. He makes that argument 30 seconds before this video ends, barely. And he's proud to take it up because of course he wants to be everybody's intellectual daddy. Of course PragerU wants to be called big brain daddy. Of course he does. I am honored to fill that role. The good news is that many men can fill it. Grandfathers, uncles, teachers, mentors, clergy. Like what the fuck? You just spent all of that time arguing why you need a father in the household. And now you're acknowledging that there are many roles in society that you can find a mentor in. Wow, Prager, you, you're, you're negating your whole argument in your last 30 seconds. What the? What? Bitch, what? And yes, even a man on the radio. But some man has to be your father. I'm Dennis Prager. He didn't make a case as to why it has to be your father because I had a lot of contentions with that. And wow, what yet again, an intellectually vacant video coming from conservative media. Whew. All right. Well, that was just fucking wonderful, wasn't it? That was that like everybody loved that, didn't they? I'm I, like, I, I, I couldn't be more proud of um, right wing media. But um, yeah, that's been Tox News. <laughs> um, follow me on Twitter at ToxinPod, T-O-X-N-P-O-D. Uh, YouTube channel in the description if you're listening to the podcast. Uh, there's also the Brookings Institute talking about the three responsibilities if you want to meet the middle class standard. Um, yeah. Uh, like the video if you liked it. Dislike if you don't. Rate, review, subscribe, ring the bell. Uh, comment below. Share it with a boomer. Share it with a zoomer. And, um, yeah, uh, promote two father households because if fathers are that essential, why not have two of them? You, you'll double your chances of success. Thanks, Prager. You taught us a lot. All right, y'all. I'll, I'll, I'll catch you next time.
Mr. Madison, what you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Okay, a simple wrong would have done just fine, but uh, you remain one.